We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome back, Courtney. Hi, Craig. <laughs> um, so this week we've got a really interesting guest, don't we? That's a bit unusual for our podcast. Yeah, so we have uh, Marilyn, I don't know her last name? Uh, Bromberg. Bromberg, yes. Yeah. And she is um, a lawyer that looks into how social media and uh, body positivity influence policy and, yep. and law and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's fascinating. And she's done a PhD uh, in... You know, yes, yeah, I'm. I'm not exactly sure what area her PhD is in, but she's done a lot of research in this in this yeah, area. Yeah. So we have a conversation with her about the relationship between uh, body image, uh, social media, and the law, particularly here in Australia and a couple of example countries. Yeah. Um, and we also uh, are going to talk about revenge porn. Yeah. As well. Which is a term she doesn't like. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> yeah. two separate but somewhat related. Uh, topics to talk about today. Yeah. It's fascinating. Very much uh, involved with the media and how the media impacts on people's health and yeah. well-being and whatnot. Um, so yeah, really interesting. But rather than us rabbit on about it, yeah. let's let people have a listen. I'd like to welcome Dr. Marilyn Bromberg to the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you. Yeah. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. So uh, you're a little different to some of the guests we get on because we're a health podcast primarily. Yes. And you, you have a background in journalism and law. Yes. Um, but a lot of your work has intersected with health and that, those sort of issues, which we'll explore a bit more going forward. Yeah. Yes, yes. Certainly, um, uh, when I started out researching as an academic, my um, main research area was social media and law, and um, that is the topic of my PhD. Um, however, as time has gone on, there are interestingly um, so many issues in health law that really uh, fascinate me, and I think that um, um, it's very much one of my research areas at the moment, health law in addition to social media and the law. Mm -hmm. And so just for the people listening who may not be familiar with you, do you want to give a bit of a synopsis of where you're from and what you've done up until now? You bet. So first of all, in case you're wondering, my accent is Canadian. <laughs> so I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. And if you want to hear me say the word A uh, and out and about, I'm very happy to whenever you like. <laughs> uh, now, um, I moved to um, Perth in uh, er, uh, January 2006, um, and I did a LLB um, at UWA Law School, and um, in um, 2010, I started practicing as a lawyer. So I've been a lawyer for about 10 and a half years. Um, at the moment, I uh, am a lawyer uh, part-time at Michael Patterson Associates in Osborne Park, and I also do uh, some pro bono work at the Fremantle Community Legal Center. Um, and I've also been an academic since uh, February 2011, um, and at the moment I'm the director of um, higher degrees coursework at the UWA Law School, and um, my uh, main research areas, as I said, are social media law and health law. So I've been in Perth now for about uh, 15 years, and I have been um, working as a lawyer and academic for uh, over 10. 
So there's a couple of things I wanted yeah. to ask you about. So first of all, what area of law do you practice in? I know the pro bono work is pretty much everything and, you know, helping people out with things that they, you know, can't do themselves. But what about your work in Osborne Park? Um, well, uh, interestingly, actually, my pro bono work is more more so criminal law because um, that's who walks in the door that um, the existing staff don't really have the ability to help, although there is some civil as well. Um, and at uh, my uh, work at Michael Patterson Associates, it's um, litigation. Okay. Yeah. And why did you decide to go into law and was like health and social media your, your first choice or did you just happen to fall into that area? Well, I went into law because um, I, I think it's a really interesting dynamic area and I like the ability to, to help people. And, and in terms of how I got into social media law and health law in, in terms of research, I remember in, I think it was 2011, and I was looking for topics for my PhD, and someone said to me, um, you should pick a topic that you're fascinated by um, and that you really love, or pick a topic that you can be consulted in and it'll make you really rich. <laughs> and so I decided to pick a topic that I was really fascinated by. And I read an article in 2011 in the West Australian newspaper about a juror who ended up going to jail in the UK for talking with one of the accused on social media. Mm. And I just thought that is so interesting. And in 2011, there wasn't much written about that area. Mm-hmm. So I decided to start my PhD, start my PhD on that. And then in about 2014, I read another article in the West Australian, which was about um, a, uh, a new law in Israel that required models to have a minimum BMI. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that was fascinating. So I, that's how I started my side research into body image law and health law. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to get to that because I think yeah. that's a really interesting topic. Yeah. And then, did I see that you worked as a journalist at some point? Yes, I did. I, so I was a, a freelance journalist for the Toronto Star for quite a while in Toronto, and I've written freelance for various newspapers in Australia, but I actually haven't um, done uh, any journalism in, in, in years now. Okay. What, yeah. what sort of areas of journalism were you working in? What topics would you write about? Sure. So... Um, uh, more soft news stories, so things about, say, events that are occurring, um, and also um, I've written about body image as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, so at the university currently, you, you do a mix of teaching and research, is that right? I do. Yeah, okay. And what, what do you teach? Um, I teach professional practice. I also teach social media law, and this year I taught uh, law, advocacy, activism, and change. Okay. And are they all undergrad um, units? Uh, two of them are undergrad yep. in the BA Law and Society major, and one of them is in the third year of the Juris Doctor, oh, which okay. is a master's level program. Yeah. So the, the activism and change unit, tell us a bit about that. That sounds really interesting. Oh, thanks. Well, um, I taught it this year well. My colleague who normally teaches it is on sabbatical. And so the unit, um, you look at different uh, different aspects of advocacy and change over a wide variety of areas. So things like um, art and advocacy, uh, like using art to create legal change, um, issues involving Aboriginal um, advocacy and making change in that area, um, also uh, digital 
uh, advocacy and, and privacy issues. So things along those lines, different, you know, there are a lot of, inter- I think, interesting um, topics involving um, legal change that are, are looked at in the unit. Mm-hmm. And are those the sort of issues that might get covered by the civil liberties union and, and that sort of thing? You yes. Know, where we talk about QR codes now being mm, used to, yes. s- to scam people for COVID and yes. all that sort of stuff. Yes. Yeah. And what, what's your favourite example of advocacy and change, for example, in that unit? Like, is it the arts section or Indigenous or digital? What's your, like, favourite thing to talk about in oh, that area? Oh, good question. I don't I don't really think I have a favourite one. I think I enjoy all of them. <laughs> I really do. I mean, yeah. I just, I can't, it would be like having to pick a favourite child if yeah. I had several children. I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess one of the things that I can probably relate to the most mm. is um, the topic of slacktivism and doing small things that um, can create change that don't require much effort because that's a lot of what I do. Like, for example, I have a Facebook page called Beauty is Only Photoshop Deep, which um, tries to promote body positivity. I sign online petitions. So I do kind of a lot of things that are um, small things mm. that um, um, can, you know, that I hope to create change. One of the things that we did in, in, in the unit that you might find interesting is put together a music video for my students. So I asked my students to uh, nominate a song uh, for which, um, you know, that involves advocacy or activism and I would play it on the piano. So one of my oh, students cool. suggested Imagine by John Lennon. So I made a video of myself playing that on the piano badly and then I posted <laughs> and I had my students guess what the song was and also how it relates to um, advocacy. Mm, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, oh, really interesting. And so you use the term slacktivism there, which yes. I've heard thrown around. Now, I wasn't sure if that was a pejorative term or if that was like a positive thing. Good, good question. Well, it depends who you ask. Okay. So many people say it's a positive thing because people can get involved in advocacy and learn more about a cause um, and possibly decide to get more involved later on or not. Um, but some people um, criticize it and say that um, people think that they're doing something when they're really not, mm. when they're engaging in slacktivism. You know, so, um, you know, someone changing their uh, Facebook, uh, the, the, the uh, background or something like that to like a charitable cause. So mm. they, you know, they, you know, so one could argue that they are doing something because they are raising awareness. But on the other hand, some critis- critics say, well, um, no, they're not doing anything because um, there's no money that is uh, being given uh, to that charity and people might not, you know, care or, you know, there might not be any repercussion of doing that. So, mm. A lot of those uh, criticisms got thrown around when the Me Too movement came up mm. and yes. Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter when people yes. blacked out their Instagram yeah. profiles and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 I feel like the criticisms... Almost kind of saying it's like the the one like equals one prayer kind of thing. Right. It's like where it doesn't <laughs> really equate that. My opinion, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, really interesting. But I feel like it kind of creates a, a community. Like you can see that they've created those images and they've mm. put that on. Then you go, okay, they are a supporter of LGBT yeah. rights or or Black Lives Matter or things like that. So yeah. Yeah, certainly the Me Too movement has Mm. benefited greatly from the exposure I think it's received just through that casual kind of sharing. Yeah. Yeah, interesting.
right. So let's move on to body image in the law. Sure. Because uh, I, I know that's an area that you've done I'm quite a bit of work really on. I'm really excited to talk about this. It's yeah. going to be interesting. <laughs> so this is a bit of a foreign concept for us in Australia, isn't yeah. it? Because we don't really have regulations or rules around this, do we? No, no. So in... Um, uh, in Australia, uh, over 10 years ago, uh, Kate Ellis, who was then the youth minister, she decided to put together um, a bunch of people to advise her on putting together a code of conduct in relation to body image. And this code of conduct is voluntary on um everyone in Australia, so there's no um, repercussions if anyone doesn't follow it. And it says things like um, models should clearly be of a healthy weight and that um, you, you know, images shouldn't be manipulated to make the model look thinner and that sort of thing. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not compulsory, so people generally aren't uh, following it. Um, you could argue that there's a public relations sanction if it's not followed. So um, with Alex Perry, I think about five years ago, he used a model who was extremely, uh, who looked extremely thin and, and healthy. And um, he received a, a backlash and he ended up apologizing. But for the most part, um, it's not being um, followed. And there have been uh, people who have argued that it should become a law so that way there'll be uh, more people who comply with it mm-hmm. than there currently are. And just to unpack it a little bit and give a bit of context, what what are the policy areas that this area of law is looking at? What are the issues that are, that are trying to be addressed here? Sure. So I think it starts with the main concept, which is our basic concept, which is that um, when... Um, some people see images of models who are unhealthily thin. They might compare themselves, feel bad about themselves, and as a result, they can develop poor body image and eating disorders. So seeing these images of these really, really thin women, um, health science has proven time and time again can be very bad for people to see. Um, But then you have all these people who don't realize that it's bad for them to see those images, uh, that it's bad for them to compare themselves to these images of these extraordinarily thin women. So it's um, it's a, a real problem. And the thing is that these images are everywhere. They are ubiquitous and it's hard to get away from them. So the idea was uh, from various governments that um, they sh- they should do something to stop these images of extraordinarily thin women being everywhere. And um, both Israel and France, France developed laws about this issue. So essentially that models have to be healthy. And in Israel, there's a minimum BMI of 18.5 that models need to have. Um, And also that if an image was modified to make the model look thinner, then there needs to be a disclaimer, a warning saying that the image was retouched. I love the idea of having that that warning there so people are made aware. Because I feel like so many images we see are photoshopped and we just don't realise it. And it can be anything from people to food to cars or whatever. Um, I'm really curious about the the BMI cutoff, though, because for me, like, I know a little bit about BMI and there's it's a bit controversial because BMI doesn't necessarily reflect 
how healthy you are. So particularly on the extremes, and that's what we're talking about, um, it doesn't necessarily reflect that you're healthy or not. Uh, so for example, you can have a like a, a BMI within the normal range and be extremely muscular and skinny. So how is that taken into account in the in the laws for Israel or is it just a hard cutoff of 18? Good 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 question. No, in Israel there is a hard cut a cutoff mm. and I agree with you that there have been many problems with um, BMI medical researchers have found that there are so many situations where it shouldn't be used and that it gives incorrect findings. Mm. But it, but the other thing though is this this um, uh, warning that an image has been photoshopped because um, you know we, the, both Israel and France require that, and also just this year as well in the UK there's a bill going through through government mm. that if an image was modified to make the model look thinner, then it needs to have a sort of logo where it's clear that it's been modified. But the thing that's very interesting is that if you look at the health research in this area, it states that um, these warnings don't help. So if you, oh. yeah, they, 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 they don't <laughs> help. So if you say like, warning, this image has been, you know, photoshopped to make the model look thinner, whether it's a general warning or a specific warning, um, it doesn't, it doesn't help. It's their, their body image is still poor. What, what they found in the, in the health research that actually does work is if, um, you, if women see images of a diverse array of women, mm. that can be good for their body image. Or if they tend to see images of women who are um, what um, you know we would what what are termed um, plus size. I don't agree with using that term. Mm. I think it's an awful term, but nevertheless, that that's what using at the moment. So so the, the the health research has found that those kind of things actually work, whereas um, seeing these. Um, Warning labels actually don't help in this, and the self-esteem still does plummet even with seeing those. Right. Yet we have these laws that require them in a few countries, and like I said, in the UK, they might get a similar law as well in, in that aspect. That's so interesting. I wonder whether you need to have like the image plus the warning plus a catalogue where you can see the original image. Because oh, then you can be like, oh, it's been photoshopped by that much. Like, you can see mm. the differences. That might be interesting. But yeah. The original doubt. doesn't help either. It's interesting you say <laughs> that. What? Like, they looked at that either. Yeah, they, oh, seeing geez. the original doesn't help either. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So, is it the, so it sounds like it's the type of model that they're using and the body shape yes. of the model. That's yeah, which is so unfortunate for, like... This is kind of like a devil's advocate point sure. of view, I guess. But, like, I feel for those models. I know that they've been pushed into being skinny and all that kind of stuff, but there is a portion of our society that are that size generally. And mm. um, I guess having that diverse range would make that more accepted. So, I, yeah, everyone shouldn't be that size, but there is a portion of people who will yeah. be. Oh, there um, are. Yeah. It's, it's about 5% of the population yeah. are about the size of a Western model. So And, and naturally, yes, mm. but the majority of women not. are not and also the size of the average woman is getting is getting bigger yeah. so therefore it's, it's you know it's just to, to me it, it breaks my heart mm. that you know in this society where we see advertisements all the time for unhealthy food and it's always in your face yet at the same time so many are are, are thinking that they need to be unhealthily thin well how can you do that in this um you know in a world that is encouraging you to be unhealthy all the time yeah. Mm. so yeah i think it's really 
something I've noticed over the last decade or so is yeah. that there are more and more realistic looking women in mm-hmm. you know in positions where they're being models or they're being held up as um, being desirable and whatnot. And I'll use Lizzo as an example. Yeah, has a huge following. For people who don't know, she's a musician, straight rapper. Yeah, and she's she's a larger woman, um, but she's her attitude is that she's proud of who she is and how she looks and shouldn't be ashamed and that's her message. And she's got an incredible number of followers mm. and seems to be really popular. And I know she's from the African-American community um, that where they might take a slightly different view to, you know, the white community, for example. But I'm interested to hear what you think and um, whether you think those sorts of people being more prominent in the media could make a difference in this area. Oh, I definitely think that um, people who are not the typical um, thin size uh, being in being being portrayed positively I think that's a really fabulous um, I, I think it's just really fabulous and and certainly the the medical research backs that up that seeing these kind of women um, are, is is good for the body image of the average person and I definitely think that there's been an increase in seeing a diverse array of body sizes but um, it's it's not enough you know mm. it's still the thin is the ideal and also there's been this campaign of you know uh, fitspo um, which is you know <laughs> yes. you should you should be you should be healthy um, not skinny however if you look at the women in the fitspo ads what you see are women who are thin um, they just might be a bit muscular mm. and there's still mm. that you know quite thin body size as opposed to a diverse realistic um, body size of mm-hmm. what women actually look like at this point in time. And that's what I find really interesting because, uh, like, I reckon those really skinny but muscular women probably do have a normal BMI um, because muscle weighs heavier than fat, yeah. um, weighs more than fat. Uh, so having a specific cutoff in law for models, like, I'm not sure whether it actually get rid of the problem because you'd still have these people that would fit into it that yeah. are... Uh, unrealistic for most people. I, yeah. I mean, I saw something interesting. There's a guy called Joe Wicks who's known as the body coach in the UK who's a fitness kind of yeah. guru and does a lot with diet and all that sort of stuff. And he posted a photo of himself from a few years ago where he was training really like mm. a lot and he was e- eating, you know, just a, an unrealistically kind of <laughs> restricted diet and yep. it was very muscle, muscly and whatever. And he posted a photo of himself today where he, he just does like a probably a, a, rec- a recommended amount of exercise, you mm. know, within the guidelines, and yep. he just eats kind of you know healthily but normal. Yeah. And he's not fat by any stretch. He's just not as ripped as he is, and he says it's not worth the, you know, the hassle. He's, he's not any happier before than he is mm. now. And yeah, I just think you know getting those messages out there that it's about oh, yeah. something that's sustainable and about being know. happy. Rather yeah, than I agree, and yeah. I think I mean from what I've read you know there are a lot of people who are happier when they do not have you know they they don't deprive themselves Mm. all the time and spend you know obsessive amounts of time uh exercising like it's it's there there's just so much pressure on people to look a certain way consciously and subconsciously Mm. you know there are the because the other you know there are many criticism that that i have of these body image laws and one of them is that they only deal with images they only think about images what about words what about all the articles that say things like here's how you lose weight Mm -hmm. and oh this celebrity has you know lost this much weight it doesn't address the words at all it's just Mm. the images and the words are a problem as well yeah 
I mean, I've had this chat with friends who've seen Adele, who's yes. transformed massively recently, you know, yes. into a really quite slender from being a, you know, kind of a more curvy build. Mm. And a, a lot of people think that she doesn't look better, she looks worse because, because <laughs> yeah. her face has changed appearance, right. she doesn't look quite as natural. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously she might be feeling better. Yeah. But I think not, that's the most important thing. Yeah. If she's feeling better, then yeah. that's it. It, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But it's interesting. Looks, yeah, I say going back 10 years or 15 years ago, people would have just assumed skinnier is better sort of thing. Oh, but yeah. these days, I, I think know. hopefully people are starting to take a bit more of a critical view of it. You know? Yes, I do hope that people are taking a critical view of it. But it's also sad in that um, she is so unbelievably incredibly talented as a mm. singer and mm. you know all this attention going to her body size like yeah. so many th- articles yes, about it <laughs> yes it just makes me think that one of the things that i'd love to see and one of the things that i advocate on um beauty is only photoshop deep my um my facebook page promoting positive body image is that let's not comment on people's weight mm-hmm. um unless you're on their allied health team if you're on their allied health team you know that's fine you say what you need to do you say is relevant um but if you aren't then just don't say anything i yep. can't tell mm-hmm. you how many times i hear people comment on other people's weight mm-hmm. or people have, who've made comments on my weight on the past and it's just mm-hmm. like if we stop talking about other people's weight then hopefully this will help to take away the pressure to look a certain way yeah. absolutely yeah and it, it's really interesting what comments you get from that so like for for me personally yes. it's actually the opposite way so my family are mostly overweight so their bmis would be higher than um what they should be in quotation marks um and i've always been the skinny one uh which is really interesting to me because i've had this pressure going you need to eat more you're, you're like all this kind of stuff and i'm like no i'm, I'm actually a healthy bmi like I, you know I exercise regularly i do all this kind of stuff i'm actually pretty healthy um and i've had this pressure saying that i'm too skinny when i'm actually not mm. um and it's really interesting how those different um, contexts and conversations and comments all influence how you build yourself um, and how you feel about yourself. So, I, like that pressure can just be immense, particularly mm. on like young women. Um, it's crazy. And the thing yeah. is that no, because it's such a, a sensitive issue, no matter what you say, you could trigger something in yeah. someone. So, if you say, "Oh, you look great, you lost weight," then somebody might think, "Oh, I should continue losing more weight, or I can't afford to gain weight because of this positive." I look these better positive, now, exactly. So I have to Exactly. Or if, you know, you say, um, you know, oh, you look um, you look much healthier mm. now or something like that. Or, oh, you've gained weight. You look much better or something like that. Then someone might think, oh, I need to lose weight because I've gained weight. Or, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Like, mm-hmm. it's just such a sensitive issue that really it's just best to say nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, we should introduce a law saying we're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that, that would be not... Yeah, totally yeah. unenforceable. Yeah. Like that, but yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, that uh, that's that's an interest from a practical perspective. Um, I can't see that happening, yeah. but I do find the idea entertaining. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah it's interesting. Um, yeah, so I think that the sort of key message is that we have a lot of science out there on how we should be living in terms of yes. diet yeah. and exercise and sleep and all that yes. sort of stuff. And I feel like if people just focused on that. And not about the outcome of being super skinny or being slightly bigger or muscly or whatever. 
so many more people would be comfortable and live in a very healthy, sustainable mm-hmm. way because they wouldn't be looking at, oh, I need to lose this number of kilos mm-hmm. by this date or, you know, that sort of thing. It's just like just your body will take care of itself if you let it, you know? Yeah. 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 And then the other thing as well is that, you know, is, is, is everybody's body is different and, um, I you know, I agree if people are doing what is healthy for them, then... Um, that to me sounds the most like most reasonable way of, of dealing with this um, mm. complex and um, challenging issue. So because this is such a sensitive um, topic for so many people, how do countries like Israel and France and Australia come up with policies about it? Sure. So um, they speak to uh, medical professionals and also they speak to people in industry as well. So um, modeling agencies and um, advertisers, the media, et cetera. Mm. And that was what Kate Ellis did uh, in Australia before um, uh, getting her group together who put together the the policy in Australia on body image. So on that point, um, you've you've done some pretty detailed work in this area. So I I wanted to speak specifically about you are beautiful no matter what they say, applying an evidence-based approach to body image law, which is an article you had published. What was was the premise of the article and and what were your findings? Sure. So I um, co-authored that article um, with uh, a few others and um, the, the premise was that there are problems with body image law, which I brought up early, brought up a few earlier, like um, that the warnings, unfortunately, don't work, according to health science, that there are problems with the applying the BMI, that um, it doesn't address, the body image laws don't address words, um, they only address images. So it was critical of the body image laws and also uh, enforcing them as well uh, would not be easy. Okay. Yeah, so so your recommendations based on the article were that we couldn't really go down the Israel route in this area. Well, it's interesting. I think that my opinion since then has changed. And I think let's see what the, re- the repercussions are of the laws in Israel and France, and then we'll talk again after it's been around for for a decent period of time. They're still both relatively new. Yeah. Okay. So, what, how many years are we talking in those jurisdictions? Do you know off the top um, of your head? Yeah. So, in Israel, about five years or, so, or five six years or so, um, and in France, about three. Okay. Yeah. Very early days. Yep. And how would we be able to see that change? Because I think in your article you said that for both of those countries they don't actually have very good measures of who um, is underweight and all this kind of thing. And um, did they take baseline measures in order to see what those policy changes could do? Um, It's interesting you said that because I've been in contact with uh, some uh, people who work in the um, with with eating disorders, mm-hmm. some researchers, and um, actually they said that they were able to. You can uh, there's a way to actually measure the body image before and um, years oh, after. So cool. there actually is a way of doing that, mm. and um, that'll be done at some point in the future. So that 
what I think will be helpful to decide whether okay. these laws are helpful or not. Yeah, great. So there's some sort of scale where they can ask questions yes. and give a score yeah, as to yeah. whether, how, how well people view themselves yes. how positively. Yep. Yeah, I think I, I've, I've seen something that gives like a scale of very skinny to um, a lot larger and you have to like pitch pick which one you think you mm. are and it's yes yeah, interesting yeah. but that's more to do with body dysmorphia i think yeah i was going to sure. say is, yeah. it, is this largely pitched at trying to prevent body dysmorphia or reduce the the rates of body mm. dysmorphia um yes and body image as well just mm-hmm. trying to um what is a it, good to, body yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to prevent more people from developing poor body image which can lead to eating disorders yeah. and i guess you could if like the policies do work you'd see um, the on the body dysmorphia uh, scale, you'd be picking larger versions of yourself, typically. Um, and then on the body positivity, you'd be picking skinnier versions of yourself. And then I guess if the policy works, like the difference between those two would be smaller. Mm. So that'd be really interesting to see. Yeah. Yeah. So just before we wrap up our conversation on this topic, mm. um, what what are your thoughts on where Australia should proceed from here? I think that, well, Australia's position at the moment is that in, industry should be left on its own to fix it and that government shouldn't get involved. Which How, never works. Never works. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm of the view that if the government can get involved and we think that it'll help, then it's worth getting involved. So I think we need to give Israel and France more time, mm-hmm. see what we can learn, do some good research over uh, in both those places and then formulate a decision as to what should happen in mm. Australia. But yeah. but certainly I don't advocate just uh, doing absolutely nothing. We need to really have a considered appropriate response that could work. Like, for example, the, the warnings on images, since we know from health science doesn't work, I would say we don't do that yeah. at the very least. Yeah, I, yeah. I think that in this country, we're starting to see the corporate world have a bit more of an influence on social policy. And I, um, I look at the recent example of the, I think it's the Yukan George, sorry, Yukan Gorge um, Aboriginal art that was destroyed mm. by one of the mining mm. companies. And the, the super funds actually stepped in and said, unless you remove the executives that were presiding over that, we're going to be withdrawing our support for you. Yeah. The executives got sacked. Um and I feel like they're starting to sort of think we need to be a bit more socially responsible and, and whatnot as a society, and they're in mm. a position to do it. And I wonder if they could have a say, you know, particularly the media world, you know, yeah. in this area. It's interesting you say that because it makes me think of, um, I don't know if you've heard of actress uh, Jamila Jamil. Yeah, mm-hmm. love so, her. So yes, good. Yes. Yeah. So she suffered from an eating disorder and she put together an online petition um, to convince um social media not to show images of diet products to people who are under 18. Mm-hmm. And so I don't remember offhand how many people signed her online petition, but because of that, um, you know, you didn't need any legislation. Uh, you just had Jamila uh, Jamil and um, her uh, championing the cause and, and both um, Facebook and Instagram decided to ban the images of diet products to under 18s because of her efforts. So you really don't know what kind of pressure on putting on uh, mm-hmm. companies to do the right thing can actually, um, what can actually happen. And it was yeah. such a great outcome because yes. a lot of the, the diet products, 
it was almost as if they were aimed for under 18 year olds as well. Like there's lollipops yes, and things yes, like that. Yeah. It's like, you know, as a 14 year old, I'd be like, yes, lollipop, let's mm. go. Um, so, yeah, it's such a good outcome with the, the work that she's done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think Western societies are, are ruled by profits a lot. And yes. I think it's the cost of those profits that needs to be yeah. taken into account more. And yeah, if people can kind of put that in, in the in the debt column alongside mm. the other things. I think that's important, just as environmental costs are now as well. We might move on to a, to a slightly different um, sure. topic, which you've done a bit of work in, and that's the non-consensual sharing of intimate images, which colloquially gets called revenge porn, and we'll talk about why that term is, you know, is not really preferred anymore. Um, but what can you tell us about, about that? Sure. So um, that involves someone um, having an intimate image of another person and distributing it without their consent. And um, that became a um, criminal law in, in Western Australia in 2019, uh, but it was a criminal law in other places for years beforehand, and it uh, was a civil law, um, there was civil law about it, um, it was, it, it's a breach of confidence um, that existed um, long before the uh, criminal law came into effect in WA. But the main thing about it is that um, it can really damage the victim. They can suffer from anxiety and depression and um, humiliation. Their family can um, just want nothing to do with them. Some people have lost their jobs because of it. So it can really hurt people. And the thing about it that um, is, is so sad, among other things, there are so many things that are sad about it, but one of the things that is quite sad about it is that um, many people blame the victim. Because mm. oftentimes the victim will send a uh, nude text or um, social media message to their partner in an environment where they think that um, their partner will, will keep it confidential and then their partner unfortunately doesn't. Often there'll be a breakup and then the image will be sent to other people. And so many people blame the victim for sending it in the first place. But I think that is a very wrong um, and, and uh, opinion to have. The, the important thing to remember is that um, when you initially, when someone initially gives an image, it is in one particular kind of context. It's not uh, given uh, in with with consent to share or, or for um, any other type of, of context. It's just supposed mm -hmm. to be between those uh, two people. Yeah, there's been some pretty high profile cases of that aren't sports people yes. sharing it with their teammates when yes um yeah okay so and so you mentioned that the, some legislation recently came in just just to give uh, listeners a a bit of a crash course in the difference between civil law and criminal law what's the what are the major differences there so um criminal law the um main i guess um aspects of criminal law are are to punish the offender or to protect society. Whereas in civil law, you're looking at trying to uh, compensate the person who was wrong, try to put them in the place where they were beforehand. So in, in this area of um, uh, what you'd be looking at is if you wanted, if the offender 
Um, if you wanted the offender to go to jail or receive criminal sh- sanctions, you would go to the police. But if you sought um, money uh, for your for you for being wrong, then you you'd start uh, litigation. Okay, and so and are you able to have both of those things? Run? Yes. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah. interesting. So people yeah. can really get punished and but both financially and criminally. Yes. Um, and what what is uh, what does the legislation, the criminal legislation, say? What is what are the elements of the offence? Sure. So the main elements are that if someone um, distributes an intimate image of someone else without that person's consent, and and um, I note that if um, the person who is is under um, sixteen, then they cannot provide consent. Then um, the person who distributed the image without consent can face um, a uh, fine of $18,000 maximum as well as 18 months in prison. And um, I note that um, there have been various prosecutions in WA pursuant to this law and um, jail time has been pretty rare. Mm. Okay. What about if, uh, for example, one of the people are under 16 um, and one of them's over 16 and the person that's over 16 shares the image, is even just having that image of the under 16-year-old um, bad for <laughs> lack of it words? Is, yes, it is. It is. Yes, yeah. it is. It is um, uh, not allowed. Yeah. Mm. So there's like yeah. multiple things that that other person could get yes. fined yeah. for. Yes, yeah. 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 That's, that's interesting. Yes, yes. yes. And, and also another thing that um, I want to explain as well is that um, the media often uses the term revenge pornography, mm. but academics, including myself, we prefer to use other terms like the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. Yeah. Because the thing is that when you use the term revenge, then you might assume that the victim deserved it. Yeah. Uh, but also, um, it also happens in situations where there's not revenge. Someone might just not know a person, hack into their iCloud, and then just take their... Uh, their photos and distribute them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, revenge porn really seems like that person's done something bad, so I'm going to get back at them. E- exactly. I'm going to do this because I exactly. know it's going to hurt. Yes, yeah. which is, and I, I, I really, really don't like it, but mm. unfortunately it's used um, quite frequently. Mm. And so what's your view of the WA legislation as it sits now? Is it? Do you think it's going to be effective or do you think it needs a bit of tweaking? Um, I think... That um, it is still early days. Um, it only came into effect in 2019, so we do need to see um, uh, more of what happens in the future. But the thing as well to remember is that um, a lot of victims are so petrified because of what happened or so hurt emotionally that they don't go to the police. So therefore, mm-hmm. um, even if you have the best laws in place, unfortunately, there's still going to be a lot of people who face absolutely no consequence because the victim isn't in a state where they feel that they can do something. Um, I also note that um, the e-safety commissioner in Australia can also help out with this. So if a victim goes to the e-safety commissioner, then they can quite quickly get the images taken down if it's on social media, that sort of thing. But again, um, the victims need to feel confident enough to contact someone about it. In many cases, Mm. they don't. 
Yeah. It would be, I guess the scenarios where somebody knows that their partner, who may now be an ex-partner, has certain material which they consensually filmed together or took photos of together. Um, and I guess it's, it would be really important to, to try and give people a remedy to prevent that from getting out there in the first place because mm. essentially once it's out there, it's out there and there's not much they can they can get sites to take it down but that doesn't stop people resharing it and distributing it. So I'm wondering if there is some sort of way like there is with domestic violence of trying to, you know, um, prevent the situation from occurring in the first place, um, whether there needs to be agencies that, that people could go to if, you know, so, someone might make a threat, say, if you do this, I'm going to send these photos to everyone for example. Well, it's interesting you say that because um, with Facebook, for example, you can send, if, if someone makes such a threat, you can send them a copy of the intimate image and then if that ever is posted, then it won't be able to be posted. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you raise uh, a very a very good point. Like they, in the literature, they call it uh, the whack-a-mole effect that mm-hmm. say you are able to successfully take down one of your intimate images, then who knows when it'll pop up again and where. And so so victims can constantly live in fear mm-hmm. of their images popping up at some point during the rest of their life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's obviously an area that's very complex and mm-hmm. it's going to need ongoing policy work and oh, yes, research. Yes. and certainly and, will. It's, yeah. a, it's, um, you know, it's a really um, interesting and I think important area of law that um, is relatively new, although not completely, because it has existed uh, previously before social media. So, for example, there was a a civil case in Queensland uh, maybe 20 years ago or something like that where someone sent a naked photo of their partner's ex-girlfriend to a print magazine and they printed the photo oh and 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 then there was a lawsuit about that and mm. the victim was successful in um, getting damages for that. Mm. Yeah. But the thing is that now with social media, it's just so easy to distribute these images to uh, millions of people. Yeah. So you do research in this area? Yes. So what, what kind of, like, what do you focus on in your research then? Sure. Area, yeah. Sure. So to date, I've looked at um, the new WA legislation mm-hmm. and you know found that it isn't quite it isn't very different to um, the other states. So uh, in Australia, and I've also looked at sentencing in um, WA. And to date, normally um, the uh, offenders don't receive a jail mm. sentence. So mm-hmm. far, they receive some sort of community-based order. Right. So why why do you think that is? Well, in, in the article that I wrote that was published this year, um, I wrote that um, I think that it has to do where uh, with a situation whereby judges typically tend to give lesser sentences when the offender knows the victim. Okay, when they know each other. Whereas when they don't, then they tend to get harsher sentences. Right. Mm -hmm. And 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 it's the idea of like when you do it for someone to someone you know, then it's arguably a crime of passion, as opposed to if someone you you don't know, then um, it's scarier to the public and um, you know possibly more 
calculated that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I've looked through the cases and, and there certainly is um, evidence to support the, uh, the the idea that sentences when are, are, are tend to be less so when when the offender knows the victim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's typically the case with uh, the non-consensual distribution of intimate images. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's a really interesting topic. Yeah. I'll be interested to see what transpires going yeah. forward in that area and what developments there are. I'm so, happy to send you all my articles. <laughs> <Yeah>. You might <laughs> yeah. regret saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're probably coming towards the end of our mm. conversation, Marilyn. Um, do you want to just keep, let us know what you've got coming up? What, what's next for you? Sure. So um, I am actually um, working on a project involving obesity in the law with um, Associate Professor Meredith Blake, who you've uh, interviewed. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, I'm going to start um, an article uh, probably actually in second semester next year on body shaming in the law. Okay. Interesting. Well, I think we'll definitely invite you back on to talk about some of those things. One of those is with the Cancer Council, right? Yes, it is. Yep. Yeah. So I think we spoke to someone from the Cancer Council and they put us on to Meredith and yourself. So, yeah, that'll be fascinating. I'd love to come back. It was Kelly. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Kelly. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Kelly from the Cancer Council. I think yeah. she's from the obesity team. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's been great chatting. Yeah, it's been fabulous talking to you. It's been so interesting. Thank yeah. you so much for having me, and uh, I look forward to coming back. Yeah, yeah. thanks. All right, thank take So that was our conversation with Dr. Marilyn Bromberg. It was so interesting. I'm so glad we had that conversation. Um, just like the amount of knowledge that she knew about the area and her involvement in it. And it was just so fascinating. Yeah. yeah no, it's a, re- a really good one. And nice to, to get different types of guests on that, that have different interests like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think having the variety of different people, not just public health researchers is is a really good thing for i mean for us but also for all you guys listening as well yeah, yeah. and i think the law does play a huge part in public health you know massively the regulating we've, the behavior of individuals and also of companies yeah and, and we've, we've the, seen that with um uh, other talk talks as well like the obesity yeah. and yep. um, tobacco have done that and um like advertisements for yeah. McDonald's and things like and that. And, you know, yeah. we, we had a guest on who, who d- dealt with uh, alcohol marketing and, yeah, and that sort that's of right. thing. Yeah, that's the topic yeah. that I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, fascinating. And we will we, we'll look for, forward to having Marilyn back on again because her work is kind of going to intersect with, with public health again. Absolutely, yeah, we'll definitely have yeah. her back on. But, yeah, that's all for us this week. Um, so how can people get in touch with us, Courtney? Yeah. So, all right. Let's let's see. We have an email address, which is uh, meaningofhealth at outlook dot com, uh, and we also have a Twitter as well, where the, our handle is at health means what. So please contact us. Please let us know what you think, and if you've got any ideas about what you want us to talk about, or just want to say hi, that would be awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Give us a, a email or yeah. tweet. And a little bit of a teaser, there's going to be a little bit of a change of format next year. Yeah. Uh, so we're looking forward to announcing that and, yeah, maybe... Fingers crossed. Yeah. Hopefully it all works out. We'll yeah, see. hopefully it works out. So hopefully we'll have a bit more to discuss and a bit yeah. more for people to look at. Yeah, but anyway, thanks very much for listening today. Yeah, we'll see you in the next episode. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health 
and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Thank you.